I am not a crook. If any line is associated with President Richard Nixon, it's that one. But that line wasn't about Nixon's biggest scandal. It wasn't actually about Watergate. Nixon didn't even say that line at the White House. He said it at Disney World. Richard Nixon was famously a huge Disney fan. The Nixon Presidential Library says that he still holds the record for the most visits to Disneyland of any president, which is just not a record you might necessarily associate with Richard Nixon. In fact, Nixon was so into Disney that he and his family were literally the first guests ever to ride the Disneyland monorail. His daughters got to cut the ribbon and everything. But this trip, the I am not a crook trip, that was business, not pleasure. In November of 1973, the month after Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in controversy, the month after the Saturday night massacre, where Nixon had two attorney generals resign on him in a single night because he ordered them to fire the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. The Associated Press held a conference at the brand new Contemporary Resort at Disney World in Orlando. And Nixon flew down to do an hour-long televised Q&A in a Disney World conference room that was filled with 400 of the Associated Press's managing editors. This was clearly going to be a tough crowd. Nixon knew this. And he did it so that he could show he was clean, to declare his innocence. But it was not Watergate or the Agnew scandal that prompted Nixon to famously declare, I am not a crook. It was his taxes. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. The crux of Nixon's tax scandal was that when he left the White House after being Eisenhower's vice president, he took all of his vice presidential records with him. Nixon then donated those records back to the National Archives year after year so that he could write the donations off of his income taxes for a grand total somewhere in the ballpark of $500,000. As much as we all associate Nixon with Watergate, his tax scandal was a huge deal at the time. It was so big that it basically forced Nixon to release some of his tax returns to the public. Congress didn't trust him, and they ended up ordering the IRS to show them even more. And that's how we got Nixon's tax scandal. And to avoid scandals like that, every president since Nixon has voluntarily released his tax returns. Every president except Donald Trump. Will you release any of your tax returns for the public to scrutinize? Well, we're working on that now. I have very big returns, as you know, and I have everything all approved and very beautiful. And we'll be working on that over the next period of time, Chuck. Absolutely. What's a period of time before the, I don't know. I mean, before the know, voting I begins? Accounts. This is not like a normal tax return. This is not a normal tax return. It sure wasn't. That was January of 2016. Trump promised he would make his, quote, big and beautiful returns public nearly seven years ago. But of course, he never did. The very next month, February of 2016, Trump started claiming that his taxes were under audit by the IRS and somehow that meant they could not be released. That was his line and he stuck to it. 
Now, we've gotten pretty major peaks over those seven years as to what exactly Trump has been unwilling to disclose, thanks to the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation about Trump taxes in The New York Times. And we'll be speaking with one of the lead reporters in that very investigation, Suzanne Craig, in just a second. But we, the public, have never truly gotten full transparency into former President Donald Trump's financial background. Tonight, that changed. Way back in 2019, the House Ways and Means Committee subpoenaed six years' worth of Trump's tax returns from the Treasury Department and the IRS. They actually used the same legal mechanism that Congress used way back in the 1970s to get the rest of President Nixon's taxes. But rather than complying, as Nixon did, Trump started a more than three-year-long legal battle, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And just last month, the court ruled on the side of the committee. What's really amazing here is how down to the wire this all was. I mean, Trump tried to pull his typical delay, delay, delay move, and it almost worked. Because in a week and a half, Republicans take control of the House, and they would have almost certainly put the kibosh on this entire thing. But tonight, just over an hour ago, the House Ways and Means Committee voted along party lines to release Trump's tax returns from 2015 to 2020. Now, the actual process of releasing them may take a few days. The committee is going to put out its report with its analysis, but it's also going to put out Trump's raw tax returns from 2015 to 2020, which, as Trump said, are big and they are beautiful. Or so he says. They just have to redact all of the Social Security numbers and personally identifiable information first, because that is how much detail we, are, we the public, are going to be getting here. So nitty-gritty that the committee has to redact the Social Security numbers. Now, I know we are very much in the throes of other ginormous Trump scandals. Today is literally the meat in the sandwich between the bread of yesterday's finals January 6th committee hearing and tomorrow when they release their full report. But I mean, after seven years, the country is finally going to see Trump's taxes. Moments ago, Democrats from the committee addressed the media to explain their vote. And from that, we've already gotten a huge new revelation about Trump's taxes. The reason the committee wanted Trump's taxes in the first place was to make sure the IRS was handling them properly. In 1977, after the Nixon tax scandal, Congress passed a law requiring all presidents to have their taxes undergo a mandatory audit by the IRS. We now know that when President Trump became President Trump, that somehow, that audit didn't happen. In the case of the Trump years, There was only one time when the mandatory audit was triggered, and that was when Chairman Neal wrote a letter. But actually, none of the examinations during those years were ever completed. And in 2018, 2019, and 2020, the uh, start of this uh, examination wasn't even begun until after Trump left office. Joining us now is Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat of Michigan, who sits on the Ways and Means Committee. Congressman Kildee, thanks for making time for us tonight. I know you were behind closed doors up until just a few moments ago. What can you tell us about the timing of this mandatory audit that all presidents are supposed to undergo? Well, part of the problem with the uh, the fact that it's a policy of the IRS and not codified in law is that it's up to the IRS to determine when and how they will conduct this sort of an audit. And what we know now, of course, after examining all these documents, is that the audits were never completed when it came to President Trump. And as Representative Chu just noted uh, on the air, 
Um, it wasn't until Chairman Neal on April 3rd of 2019 sent the letter requesting these documents under Section 6103, the authority that we have to get access to the documents. It wasn't until then, and it was that very day, that an audit was actually initiated. But no audits from 2015 all the way through today, no audits of the president of President Trump's taxes have ever been completed. And very few were even tagged for audit until after, in fact, none were tagged for audit until after we began this process of trying to ascertain these documents. Clearly, the IRS failed to conduct the audit of the President of the United States. Clearly, this President's taxes are a matter of public interest in the sense that he, is the, he was the President of the United States with unique authority that no other person has. The reason that we ask for these returns was to determine whether we need to strengthen this aspect of, of American law, of the American tax code. And clearly, after examining the, the audits that we looked at, or I'm sorry, the tax returns that we looked at, and the report of the Joint Committee on Taxation and the Ways and Means staff, it was clear that we need to follow through with legislation. No documents make the argument stronger for the need for us to codify this in law and strengthen the mandatory audit program than an examination of those tax returns. And that's why it was so important that we felt that they needed to be forwarded to the House of Representatives, which makes them public, in order to take that step. I gotta ask, having no idea what the answer to this is, Trump's tax return were such an object of debate. They were so much in the news media. How did the IRS forget that they had a mandatory audit of the presidential tax returns? I mean, do you, is there politics involved here? Do you think there's something b bigger at play than just uh, omission? It's hard to say. We know that this was a failure at the IRS. There's no question about that. How that came to pass is another question I think obviously people will speculate about. I mean, it is the case that the president of the United States sits atop the federal government. One might speculate that there could have been influence. Maybe not. But one of the reasons that we felt like it's important to codify this is that we don't want to leave it up to somebody sitting in the IRS, an employee of the federal government, deciding that they should initiate an audit of the president of the United States. We think that ought to be done by operation of law and not left up to a person who indirectly or directly reports to that very same president of the United States. That obviously doesn't make sense. And that's one of the reasons that we're anxious to move forward on legislation. I think the, other it's the purpose it's the purpose we ask for all of this in the first place is to try to see whether this is working and how bad if it is bad, how bad it is to correct it. And of course, we've come to the conclusion that this is worse than many of us expected. I didn't expect there would be no audits initiated. I was, sh I was shocked to see that. I think the other thing that confuses people is that President Trump said for a while that the reason he could not release his tax returns is because they were under audit. How does that factor into all of this? Was that a, a different, that I'm assuming that's a different audit, him as a personal citizen versus this mandatory presidential audit, but perhaps you can clear that up because he was asserting that well before any audits apparently actually started being started happening. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the president as an individual may have been under audit the way lots of Americans come under audit. And he had been previously under audit, but he was not under the mandatory audit, which we believe needs to be done on a particular timeline. I mean, there's no excuse, for example, that any audit of the president of President Trump 
whether it began in 2015 or afterward, none of them have been completed, not one. Uh, so we don't want to leave ourselves in a situation where it's up to the IRS to decide to audit him and up to the IRS to fight with the president of the United States over the conditions of that auditing process. Uh, the mandatory audit of the president and the vice president of the United States ought to be codified in law and strengthened so that it has to happen and it has to happen on our timeline, not in a situation where the president then can simply delay, delay, delay and obfuscate, which has obviously been a tactic that he's used throughout his entire business career. We can't let that happen when it's the president of the United States with, un with incredible authority to affect policy and to affect his own fortunes. Can I ask, because we're talking about delay and because the clock is very much ticking down to the end of the year, the, the, the Ways and Means Committee received these uh, tax returns last month. Today is the day that there's actually been a debate and vote about whether to release them. What explains the gap between when the committee first got them and the vote happening today? And when do you think the public will actually see the returns? Will it be this week? It will be. It'll be as soon as we can get the redactions done. The Republican and Democratic staff are working together to make sure that we identify that personally identifiable information that should not be released. That's being done even as we speak. But the reason that we're just acting now is that we were just able, as a result of the Supreme Court decision in November, November 22nd, we were just able to get access to the documents. It takes some time to go through these voluminous returns and to prepare reports so that we can inform ourselves on the uh, ourselves on the decision but the reason it's taken so long just to be clear isn't because we wanted to wait till the end of this calendar year the end of this term it's because this case was tied up in the courts we won four different cases in three separate courts ending with the supreme court under justice roberts determining that we were correct and our authority to seek these documents. I don't believe in wasting a single day in Congress. Even if it's the, one of the last days of a Congress, we still have an obligation to continue to do our job. Now, the question is whether or not we can get legislation enacted into the president's desk so that it becomes law. And another question is whether Republicans will join us in this. They, they may have objected to the release of these documents. I think it was important because it's the important context to support the need for the legislation. But if they're willing to say, look, they still believe that, that we ought to codify the mandatory auditing program, then let's do that. And let's do that in a bipartisan way. It's going to be a great test of how allegiant they are going to be to the former president. But, you know, big, beautiful tax returns. They're a source of controversy in the modern day. Democratic Congressman Dan Kildee of Michigan, member of the Ways and Means Committee. Congressman Kildee, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Alex. Now let's turn to Suzanne Craig. She is an investigative reporter for The New York Times and one of the lead reporters on The Times' multi-year investigation into Donald Trump's finances that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2019. So she is literally the perfect person to talk to about the Ways and Means Committee's decision today. Sue, uh... How are you greeting this news as a reporter? Is there stuff in here that you still do not know the answer to? Is there information that you are particularly interested in finding out that you have not thus far been able to, to find out in your extensive reporting? <laughs> well, I'm smiling because uh, one second before <laughs> before I came on air, the report came out. So I, I'm trying not to look over here and, and read it. But um, <laughs> I, there's going to be a, there's probably going to be a lot in there. But I, I think we're not. We're not, I don't think we're going to find anything too crazy that we haven't known before. 
The New York Times obtained three out of the three or four out of the five years that are being released today, and we have more information um, than they do in terms of individual businesses. We're, you know, we found Donald Trump is not a great businessman. Most of his businesses lose um, lose a fair bit of money. I don't think we're going to see a break from that. We're going to find out in the last two years. You know, he he had a change of you know fortune. In fact, you're probably going to see COVID had a pretty big effect on his uh, on his businesses. Um, but I, this audit this audit issue is interesting, and I want to break out kind of the, the presidential audit, and then the the um, the audit that we found out that if it goes against him, could cost him in excess of a hundred million dollars. We learned today that that audit, which started in two thousand and nine, um, is still open. It sounds like. And then there's the the regular presidential audits that are supposed to be done that that weren't done. I have to say it's kind of one of the least shocking things I've heard today. But you know, it is it is sort of surprising that they were they weren't even bothering to do it. Um, Wait, so those are kind of two, so, two separate. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that not surprising to you? Congressman Kildee seemed very shocked, and you don't seem shocked at all. Can you <laughs> explain the the gulf? When, there? when I find out that there's gambling in a casino, I'm right. I'm not surprised. I mean, after everything we lived through with the Trump administration, to learn that oh, the IRS didn't audit his taxes as they were supposed to. I mean, that's the least surprising thing I think I've heard come out of the four years of the Trump administration. I mean, it's upsetting as, as a taxpayer and as a citizen, you would have hoped that they would have, have done it. I don't know why they didn't. Maybe they you know, don't have enough staff to, to dedicate it to. If you think they would have a team of people that could do it, you know, maybe there was an order from on high not to do it. Um, we don't know. But I just, you know, it, it's shocking, but not shocking, I guess is what I'm saying on that. Um, but it is interesting that, that the other audit that we learned about when we did the story in 2020, when we got a huge amount of tax information, we also learned some information about that big audit. Um, that that apparently is still open. So that's definitely something to watch. And, and and if it goes against him, you know, with penalties and interest now, it could go well above 100 million. That is not a small amount of money for anybody, including Donald Trump. Uh, when we talk about the financial straits that Trump finds himself in, there's that potential looming $100 million. Last month, a judge appointed an yeah. independent monitor to oversee the Trump organization. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, Alan Weisselberg, his chief financial officer for the Trump organization, is going to jail. Letitia James, the New York AG, has yeah. a civil uh, fraud suit against him that could cost could effectively shut down the business from, well, affect operating in, in the state well, of let, New York. Let's stop on that one. Because that, that one, and it may settle and we don't know what's going to happen, but that one could go upwards of $250 million. And, and these fines aren't tax deductible. He can't, he can't go in and then use it to reduce his taxable income. I mean, that's a big number. And then you think, you know, you're seeing signs of stress in his business. I mean, the, the biggest one we can point to is the sale of the old post office hotel. He, it, he recently built it. It was, you know, a crown jewel in his, in his collection of hotels and golf properties that he has, and they sold it. And then separately, I have to say, you know, this, this, everybody kind of is laughing at this, whatever, you know, these fungible, this NTF thing that he's doing, where he's NFTs. putting out trading cards, NFTs. Yeah. I mean, that looked crazy. Right. And, and I don't think anybody's saying it doesn't look crazy. This is a guy who cares about his brand or cared about his brand. This is not good for the brand. 
And this is sort of where he's at. And you have to question, why is he doing it? Well, I think there's probably a bag of money at the end of it. And that's why he did it. But but it's not good for his brand. And, and a lot of things he's been doing are good for his brand. But he just continues down this slippery slope. But it's some. It, it, there was a point in time where he had a brand that, that was, you know, very thought of in, in many circles to sort of stand for high quality. Yeah, the, the, I think a lot of people looked at the sale of the NFTs, Trump dressed up as a superhero like, and like a firefighter and an astronaut and chuckled at it. But right. it was actually indicative of a man who seems desperate. I mean, this is the kind of marketing this is back. This right. makes the Trump vodka and the Trump steaks look like high class marketing ploys. Right. I mean, this was. No, I mean, it makes the Trump ties look like the best thing ever. I mean, it, and it I does. Th- and I, the first thing I thought when I saw it was, wow. He must need money. And his fundraising, even as a political figure, is greatly diminished from when his announcement for his 2024 campaign. Yeah. He raised exponentially less money than he did when he announced his last presidential bid. So what we're looking at right. is a picture of a man who seems increasingly desperate in the arena that he care, perhaps cares mo- most about, which is financial prowess. Right. And the other thing that's important, you know, and we the tax return information that we saw was up until 2018. And you were seeing going into that, you know, he he had the apprentice and the apprentice brought in a lot of money, not just directly from the apprentice, but he got all these these other deals around it, these branding deals. And he was able to do hotel deals overseas and other things. And we saw going into to, to the presidency and leading leading up to actually when he ran that that was falling off. And, and it, it's not doing well now. Um, you haven't seen since he left office that that countries around the world, there, there's hotels calling him saying, put your name on my hotel. Mm. So that income has dried up. You know, there's just not a lot of good signs that we were seeing coming into this. And I just don't think, you know, the, the additional information we're going to get, there's probably going to be some really interesting stuff in it, but I don't think it's going to cut across the narrative that we were seeing. Suzanne Craig, investigative reporter for the New York Times, the the oracle when it comes to Trump's taxes. Sue, <laughs> thanks for joining us tonight. We will be back to you soon for Thank more. Thank you for having me. We have much more ahead tonight. We are just hours away from the January 6th committee releasing its final report, wrapping up a year and a half of an investigation into that violent day at the Capitol and the weeks leading up to it. But over at the Department of Justice, the investigation is January 6th is very much ongoing, and it is an open question about what special counsel Jack Smith is up to as the investigation in Congress comes to an end. And just how much did the Secret Service know about what Donald Trump supporters were planning to do on January 6th? New reporting from Carol Lenning, the reporter who wrote the book on the Secret Service, is just ahead. Stay with us. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. 
at a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined. My guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. As the January 6th committee held its final public meeting yesterday and unveiled four criminal referrals for former President Donald Trump, it also released a 154-page executive summary, a, a very hefty 154-page summary highlighting the committee's key findings from its 18-month investigation. Chief among those findings, President Trump disseminated false election fraud allegations. He pressured Vice President Pence and other elections officials and members of Congress and summoned a violent mob to Washington, D.C., all in support of a multi-part conspiracy to overturn the lawful results of the 2020 presidential election. But there were other less principal findings in that report that were bombshells in their own right, like this one. The committee believes some witnesses with close ties to Trump were less than honest with the committee. The committee called out people including Ivanka Trump, Kayleigh McEnany, Hope Hicks, and former Secret Service official Tony Ornato. And now we are learning from a CNN report that Donald Trump's top ethics lawyer, Stefan Pazentino, advised his former his former client, Cassidy Hutchinson, who gave that explosive testimony to the committee this summer, Pasentino advised her to tell the committee she did not recall details that she did indeed remember. According to CNN, Trump's Save America Political Action Committee paid for Pasentino to represent Hutchinson, which is something that should certainly demand further investigation. In other words, the questions around January 6th certainly have not all been answered, and there are likely to be more of them tomorrow. In less than 24 hours, the committee will start to make the mother load of its evidence public, and that will include much of its nearly 1,200 witness interview transcripts and tons of documents about Trump's involvement in January 6th. For months, the DOJ has asked the committee for many of these items, and for months, the committee has been reluctant to acquiesce to that request until now. Hours ago, Punchbowl News reported that the Justice Department special counsel, Jack Smith, sent the select committee a letter earlier this month requesting all the materials the committee has gathered for the past year and a half. And as of last week, the committee began to send over the goods, reams of documents and transcripts. NBC News confirms that the committee has been actively cooperating with the Justice Department for the past month, just ahead of tomorrow's big public reveal. Joining us now is Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. Luke, thank for thank you for being here tonight. I got some questions about what's happening between the DOJ and the January 6th committee, because for a long time we have had reporting that there was tension between the two. Does it now seem that they are working hand in glove? And do you read anything into that cooperation as far as potential criminal indictments based on the referrals from the committee? Right. Well, we know that the uh, Justice Department wants everything the January 6th committee has. And for a long time, the January 6th committee was reluctant to turn over all their materials to the Justice Department. But they have begun to do so. Uh, we know from the committee's uh, report yesterday, the executive summary, that they've already given them some materials about possible obstruction and witness tampering in, in the committee's view, and that um, they're going to begin uh, giving them all the transcripts 
um, some hundreds and hundreds of transcripts before the end of the month. This is what justice has wanted for a long time. They feel the committee's done a really robust investigation here. And as they're interviewing some of these witnesses, they want to see exactly what those witnesses said to Congress before they question them themselves. So, you know, there was a bit of, a, I think, in my view, a bureaucratic fight over this for several months. I think a lot of people viewed that as unfortunate, but it does seem now that there is going to be full cooperation before the year's out. And so we're not we're not at a point yet where one might say, oh, there's specific cooperation or maybe they're seeing eye to eye on these potential criminal referrals that the committee issued yesterday. And will that inform the indictment process if there is one? I mean, I, I guess if you don't know the answer to that, let me also ask, Lou, you know, the, yeah. we, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a little too soon to read into that based on this. I think what, what we can safely assume um, is that the the Justice Department is interested in investigating all of these things, mm-hmm. and not that they've reached the same conclusions that the January 6th committee put out yesterday when they issued those criminal referrals. So they want to see all the evidence they can. And look, we know they're really ramping things up. I mean, they put out subpoenas in all seven states where the so-called fake elector scheme was carried out. And we know that that was carried out by the Trump campaign, by lawyers for the Trump campaign. And we know that that was the basis of many of the referrals that we saw yesterday. So this is a very active investigation. And I think it's just it's just one more sign that Jack Smith is getting down to business and being very serious about about how he's going about his work. Yeah, it's how, it seems like the the committee also planted some red flags for Jack Smith to further investigate. They said repeatedly, you know, talking about witness tampering, that there were numerous witnesses whose testimony was unreliable. And the committee sort of suggested perhaps the DOJ will have a more they will be more effective in their line of qu- questioning should they choose to call these witnesses in. Do you, is it your expectation that people like Tony Ornato, Kaylee McEnany, uh, Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, that they I mean, what, wh- where do we think the DOJ is in terms of following up on the f- witnesses and the testimony that the committee has found questionable? Right. Well, the committee has long said that the Justice Department has certain powers and abilities that they lack. Remember, this is that they work. They are a congressional investigation. They're legislators. You know, they're not they're not federal prosecutors. They don't have the power to throw anybody in jail, to put anybody in handcuffs. And they, they can't even really even threaten to do that. But the Justice Department certainly can. And so I think many of these witnesses may well treat a subpoena from the Justice Department differently than a subpoena from a legislative branch. And so and we've even seen the Justice Department uh, subpoena some of the same witnesses uh, that have already testified before the committee and, in fact, get some rulings that pierce some of the privilege assertions that some of the witnesses made before the January 6th committee. So I do think if they put their full effort into an investigation, they can easily go beyond what Congress has done here. And the congressional investigation was very robust. Yeah, that is saying something to go well beyond what the committee did, given how, as you say, robust their investigation has been. Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for The New York Times. Thanks, Luke, as always. Thank you. Still ahead this hour, the January 6th committee's final report is likely to focus on the actions of the former president, but there is still a lot we don't know 
about what the Secret Service did and did not do leading up to the riot at the Capitol. Carol Lenning at The Washington Post has reported extensively on the Secret Service's role that day, and she will join me to discuss the questions that very much still linger. Stay with us. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On December 19th, 2021, Donald Trump tweeted this. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. Less than a week later, on December 24th, the Secret Service received an alarming report about how Trump supporters were reacting to his message. From the report, Trump can't exactly openly tell you to revolt. This is the closest he'll ever get, one person wrote. I read the president's tweet as armed, another person said. There's not enough cops in D.C. to stop what's coming, replied another. Be already in place when Congress tries to get to their meeting and make sure they know who to fear. Trump's tweet was being interpreted as a call to arms, as an invitation to revolt. Two days later, on December 26, the Secret Service got another tip, this time about the Proud Boys plan to, quote, literally kill people during an armed march in D.C. The informant then added, please, please take this tip seriously. Three days later, on December 29th, the Secret Service held an intelligence briefing where it concluded President Trump's supporters have proposed a movement to occupy Capitol Hill on January 6th. It does not get much clearer than that. The Secret Service and other intelligence agencies, they knew ahead of time that the Capitol was likely to become a target of violence on January 6th. This is one of the many things we learned from the executive summary that the January 6th committee released yesterday. And from that report, we also learned that the person who was in charge of informing the White House about these alarming threats doesn't recall if he informed anyone about these alarming threats. That man is former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and former Secret Service agent Tony Ornato. This is the question from the committee. Do you remember talking to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about any of your concerns about the threat landscape going into January 6th? Ornato, I don't recall. However, in my position, I would have made sure he was tracking the demos, which he received a daily brief, a presidential briefing. Despite having key intelligence at hand and despite it being literally his job to inform the White House about these threats, Mr. Ornato told the committee he doesn't recall if he did. And it's important to pay attention to the language here because it is not the first time the committee has been stonewalled with those exact words. In fact, another big revelation from the committee yesterday is that it has specific evidence that at least one witness was asked by pro-Trump allies 
to not recall the facts during her interview. And that witness's lawyer would not would not tell her who was paying his fees. Quote, the lawyer advised the witness that the witness could, in certain circumstances, tell the committee that she did not recall facts when she did actually recall them. We don't know if a pro-Trump group told Mr. Ornato to do the same thing, but one does wonder, especially because Ornato seems to have had a close relationship with Trump when he was a Secret Service agent, so much so that President Trump took him to work at the White House. And then there is this. The summary from the January 6th panel says a small group of Secret Service agents relied on private counsel rather than using representation assigned by the Secret Service agency. That representation would have been free. The committee then cites footnote 704, which lists Tony Ornato as one of those agents. Now, it's unclear if the Secret Service would have assigned a lawyer to Mr. Ornato since he was a White House employee during January 6th, but it is a fact that he retained private counsel. Who's paying for it? We don't know. But the committee is planning on releasing the full transcript of Ornato's testimony so the public, and perhaps more importantly, the Justice Department, can make its own conclusions, especially because the January 6th committee has found Ornato to be significantly unreliable. Joining us now to discuss this is Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. She is also the author of Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, it's great to see you. You were the first person I thought of yesterday as I was combing through that summary and reading about the Secret Service. How, what do you make of the fact that there are 30 agents cited specifically in the report that are retaining private counsel in lieu of taking on free agency representation? Well, it seems as if, you know, in the course of your public servant role, that you have a very specific job, you assess the security for the president or the vice president or family members, you provide protective intelligence about potential threats to the protectees of the Secret Service. It seems like in the course of that job, that nothing too controversial factually or legally compromising is going to come up for you. And so I understand why the committee highlights their concern about private counsel. The idea is why spend all that money just answering basic questions about you doing your proper job, which is pretty much supposed to be apolitical. The problem for Tony Ornato is that he really breaks a lot of barriers and norms in the Secret Service as Donald Trump did throughout his presidency. Tony Arnato used to be the Secret Service head of the security detail for Donald Trump. Donald Trump grew extremely fond of him, thought really well of him, thought he was very loyal, uh, an excellent uh, detail leader, and wanted him to be elevated to be the director. Tony did not want that job, and the president made him the White House deputy chief of staff. What's the problem with that, Alex? You know it uh, very well because you've really studied this too. He became a political operative in the White House, even though he had a public service job and still technically worked for the Secret Service. What was his new mission? Not to be looking out for the security of the president, but to be looking out for how the president could get reelected, creating events and moments and public Uh, photo ops that would make the president look stronger and help him win over voters. That was a big issue. And I can see now why Ornato would want his own counsel because he did have an exceptionally unusual job as a political, you know, 
basically a political deputy who enabled Donald Trump in, in some of his worst instincts, especially in 2020. I mean, the fact, though, is, Carol, I mean, even people who weren't Tony Ornato have apparently given the, the committee some questionable testimony. And as you say, this is the Secret Service. This is supposed to be fairly straightforward. This is supposed to be black and white. Right. And yet we keep returning to this topic because the Secret Service was in a really particular position on January 6th. They knew what the president was trying to do. They had a very clear view into his intent in terms of actions that day. And yet we it seems like it's been very difficult to get a full full testimony and the full truth from the key agents, among them Bobby Engel, who was the, the agent who is the, the lead in President Trump's detail. He was not mentioned at all in this committee report. But you have reporting on Bobby Engel's testimony very much going against the testimony of other witnesses who were there as President Trump tried to return to the Capitol. Can you tell me a little bit more about what Bobby Engel said? Absolutely. I would like to just flag one thing you said a minute ago before I answer that question, Alex, which is you could not be more dead on right about the Secret Service being what they call uh, at the right hand of the president. This detail leader is on the shoulder of the president, a witness to everything he says and does, almost everything except going to the bathroom or having a private meeting in the Oval. When the president is moving towards the ellipse, when he's leaving his speech, and when he's demanding to be taken to the Capitol, when he's getting briefed on on the weapons that people have, outside his speech, it's the Secret Service that's right at his shoulder. Here's what Bobby Engel uh, told the committee in the most recent interview he had with them in November, according to my sources who are briefed on that interview. He said he didn't see the president make any lunging motion towards his driver in the SUV, as Cassidy Hutchinson relayed that she had been told. Bobby Engel told the committee that there was no physical altercation. He was not assaulted by Donald Trump. He was not grabbed or lunged for by the former president, the person that he was sworn to protect as his detail leader. And why is this significant, Alex? Well, Bobby Engel says, uh, you know, this didn't happen. He doesn't say, I don't recall. And, And here's the problem for the committee. They had a witness named Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who had some incredibly powerful testimony, much of it firsthand. She was there when Mark Meadows said the president didn't want to act on any of the requests from his aides to please tell the rioters to leave the Capitol. She was there uh, and heard that the president had been briefed. Mark Meadows had been briefed and was going to brief Trump on the fact that there were weapons in the crowd of Trump supporters, that they were armed to the teeth in some cases. And that was the group Donald Trump urged to go to the Capitol. All goes to what you said, state of mind. So these are really important moments. But Cassidy Hutchinson also relayed a bombshell that was secondhand. She was clear. I was told by Tony Ornato, she said, that the president lunged for his detail leader, Bobby Engel, lunged for the steering wheel. He was so irate and furious, he physically went for the jugular of these individuals when they when Bobby Engel told him, it's not safe to take you to the Capitol. We're not going there. That also goes, in some respects, 
to Donald Trump's insistence on joining his supporters mm. at the Capitol, which, yep. you know, is crazy town uh, when you have like sort of a loaded missile um, directed by the president to the Capitol, when you know there are weapons in the crowd. And as we all know, they became violent and they were a mob that attacked that that icon of democracy. Uh, but Cassidy Hutchinson didn't see it herself. And now we have Tony Arnato saying he doesn't recall. And we have Bobby Engel saying that didn't happen in the car. And I was there. I'll tell you, when the full report comes out tomorrow, the pages I'm looking for, the transcripts I want to see are Bobby Engels and Tony Ornato's. Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you, as always, for your wisdom, Carol. Thanks, Alec. After voting shortly before to release Donald Trump's taxes, the House Ways and Means Committee has just released two reports about Trump's taxes. NBC News senior national political reporter Sahil Kapoor has been reading the reports and is going to join us to talk about them. Coming up next. The House Ways and Means Committee only had their hands on former President Trump's taxes for a few weeks, but check out what they have spotted already and that they believe the IRS needs to examine closely. Trump carried a net operating loss in 2015 of $105 million and then carried that operating loss over for several more years. He made loans to his children, loans that apparently concerned the House Ways and Means Committee because they could be gifts disguised as loans to avoid the gift tax. Trump also apparently claimed that a company controlled by him called DJT Holdings deducted $126.5 million as a cost of goods sold deduction, but did not say what goods had been sold. That is all from the report released tonight by the House Ways and Means Committee after their historic vote this evening to release President Trump's tax returns. And that is just what we found here so far from our very initial speed read. NBC's own Sahil Kapoor has also been cramming this report, and he joins us now. NBC News senior national political reporter Sahil Kapoor. Sahil, what? Uh, granted, we've had this for like a matter of minutes, but what is your top line here? What can you, what can you tell us about what you're seeing in these reports? Yeah, Alex, I've been attempting a speed read, too, of these multiple reports that the committee has put out, one by the Ways and Means Committee itself and one by the Joint Committee on Taxation, which has some more specific numbers on uh, Donald J. Trump's tax returns over six years from 2015 to 2020. The biggest thing that stands out to me, Alex, is the specific purpose for which the Ways and Means Committee wanted these tax returns to begin with. There is a procedure uh, by which the IRS subjects the president's tax returns to mandatory review. Uh, the chairman of this committee, Richie Neal, had a suspicion that that program was not operating as it should, that Donald Trump, in being the first president in uh, 40 years to conceal his tax returns in his presidential campaign, could be unduly influencing that program. And Richie Neal concludes, after viewing these tax returns, that that is precisely what happened. Neal says, quote, we know now the first mandatory audit was open two years into his presidency. In other words, uh, he says the review found that under the previous administration, i.e. the Trump administration, the program was dormant. And that's why Richie Neal said he wanted these tax returns, because the valid legislative purpose that he cited uh, for viewing you know, an American's tax returns 
uh, which a chairman has to cite. You can't just do that for any reason. This is a congressional committee. They have to cite that purpose under the very arcane statute that goes back about a century. They said this was a specific legislative purpose that they want. And they found the first two years of, of Donald Trump's presidency until they requested these tax returns, that the uh, audit wasn't happening at all. After that, they found some specific issues that they said would have should have warranted further audit that maybe that information was not coming to uh, to them on. And that includes some of the things that you mentioned, including um, charitable contributions, whether certain deductions were supported by required documentation or whether more was necessary, unreimbursed business expenses and their legitimacy. And also this question of whether loans made to the former president's children were loans or disguised gifts that could trigger a gift tax. These were the kinds of things that uh, the Ways and Means Committee said should have triggered that audit and should have raised questions. And the conclusion that Richie Neal and the Ways and Means Committee come to here is that Congress needs to codify that audit program into law to make sure that presidents cannot evade them, that the uh, American public deserves to know this kinds of information so they can have trust in the president's finances and potential uh, involvements and potential foreign bank accounts and entanglements that this gets all the way back in, in, in Neil's view to the, you know, it validates his entire purpose of, of wanting these tax returns in the first place. Alex. I was also just struck by the fact that this is a president who said repeatedly the tax returns are so big and beautiful. And he didn't use the word voluminous, but other people have. And in the end, the tax the agents say they were expecting large, large amounts of tax returns and all they got were one banker's box in the size of paper files and two banker's boxes in the size of tax returns for the six years of tax returns and information requested from the former president. Not so big after all. What else is new? NBC News senior national political reporter Sahil Kapoor. Great to see you, my friend. Thank you for doing that speed read for us. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.